3: But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish protocol or the Northern Irish protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain.
4: Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's weekly podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe
0: editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London.
5: And I'm Colm Mungoin, RT's Deputy Foreign Editor at home. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments from London, Brussels and Dublin.
4: Countdown to catastrophe. With just hours to go before the EU and UK decide if they can strike a deal or throw in the towel, heavy goods vehicles are already stacking up on the motorways to Dover and Calais.
0: We'll assess the mood in London and Brussels after that dinner of scallops and steamed turbot as both sides trade barbs over the meaning of sovereignty and the normal obligations of international trade. We'll hear from a former advisor to the head of the World Trade Organization,
4: Pascal Lamy, about what a WTO Brexit will mean in the real world. And we'll bring
5: you up to date on the big developments around the Northern Ireland Protocol, with both sides announcing wholesale solutions to the economic and logistical upheaval caused by that border on the Irish Sea. So it looks like sausages have been saved, but only for six months, if that's enough S's for you. Let's get up to date on the negotiations, first of all. Tony, to you first, in Brussels, where there was a variety of notes being struck today, mostly on the downbeat side of things, people talking about possibilities rather than probabilities.
4: Yeah, I mean, the the preamble to the talks getting back underway was a a two-day summit of EU leaders here in Brussels, and they had another all-nighter last night. Sean will know all about those from his time in Brussels. Um, But they weren't talking about Brexit at all, hardly. It was all about climate change and EU-US relations and Turkey and the COVID recovery fund and so on. Uh, We were told that Ursula von der Leyen gave a 10-minute briefing to leaders on the dinner she had with Boris Johnson on Wednesday night. Then uh, Mark Rutte, the Dutch prime minister, stepped up and corrected her and said, no, it wasn't 10 minutes, it was eight minutes. Uh, So that's an indication of uh, where the priorities lay uh, among EU leaders uh, on Thursday night. Um, Having said that, of course, there's been a lot of scepticism and worry. And I suppose Boris Johnson had said that there was now a serious possibility of a no-deal Brexit, and that was kind of echoed uh, by any uh, EU leaders who spoke about it, including the Taoiseach, Michael Martin. Uh, he gave his views on whether there or not there might be a deal uh, this weekend when, when the negotiators get back on track and get back into the negotiating room in Brussels with a, a deadline of reaching some kind of agreement on Sunday. Now, we don't know whether they have to get a deal by Sunday afternoon or whether they have to just decide whether they can keep going or whether just throw in the towel. Uh, But Sunday is where all the attention will be now over the weekend.
5: Right. I did see on Reuters earlier the German Foreign Minister Heiko Maas being quoted as saying that Sunday, if it wasn't all done, it could run over by another couple of days. Now, I did listen to the press conference that he did with Simon Coveney, who was over discussing the UN Security Council, role that Ireland will be taking up, taking over from Germany from the 1st of January and listen through the presser, both in German and English, and I didn't hear him say that particular thing, so we have to assume that Sunday is as much of a deadline as we have at the moment. Sean, Boris Johnson earlier speaking at his visit to, I think, a battery plant in the northeast of England sounded positively cheerful about the prospect of no deal.
0: Well, I guess he has to talk it up now. i mean, all through uh, these talks this year, they've been talking up this notion of an Australian-style uh, deal with the European Union, which is, of course, the euphemism for a no-deal at all. Uh, but he has been saying all along, Britain will prosper mightily even if we don't get a deal with the European Union. So it's all right, I don't mind, either or will do me. And he's still uh, trying to bang on that drum, although sounding, I thought, a little bit less convincing when he spoke uh, today, Friday.
5: You thought there was a bit of forced cheer there. Well, let's hear what he had to say and we let the listener judge for themselves.
3: Well, we're always hopeful. And uh, as you know, the negotiations are continuing. Uh, we've got our, our teams still out there in Brussels. And, uh, you know, if there's, if there's uh, a... A, a big offer a, a big change in what they're saying then I, I must say that, that I've yet t- to see it unfortunately at the moment as, as you know there are two key things where we we just can't seem to uh, to make progress and that's the it's kind of ratchet clause they've got in to keep the UK uh, locked in uh, to whatever they want to to do in terms of legislation which obviously doesn't work and then there's the the whole issue of fish where you know we've got to be able to take back control of our of our waters so there's a way to go uh, we're hopeful that progress uh, can be made but I've got to tell you that from where I stand now uh, here in Blythe uh, it's looking, it's looking you know, very very likely that we'll have to go for a solution that I think would be you know, wonderful for the UK, we'd be able to do exactly what we want from, uh, from January the 1st, obviously it would be uh, different from what we'd set out to achieve, but I've no doubt that this country can get ready And as I say, come out on world trade terms.
5: All this cheerfulness about going out with no deal is a far cry from what we heard almost on this day last year when going into the election, Boris Johnson was promising a deal.
0: He was. And, you know, there's been a little bit of confusion in in the the, the past couple of days about the oven-ready deal. I mean, he was talking about the oven-ready deal last year going into and through and just out of the general election. Uh, which returned him with that something great majority. And the deal he was talking about was the one that he had done, essentially, uh, with the then Taoiseach Leo Varadkar in Liverpool that turned what had been a backstop into a front stop uh, for the Northern Ireland uh, and becoming the Northern Ireland Protocol in the withdrawal agreement. So that was the oven-ready deal. All it needed was ratification in Westminster uh, and in Strasbourg, uh, and that's indeed what happened. But he was also then... Saying yes, arising out of that, we have to do another deal. That's the trade deal and the future relationship talks, and that's uh, what he uh, was promising uh, also throughout the year that they would get it done. Um, he also, in the uh, Conservative Party manifesto, and that's something which is almost regarded as holy writ here, and certainly uh, David Frost uh, mentions it uh, and has mentioned it right from the beginning as being the key founding document that gives him his mandate uh, because it got endorsed by the British people, although I think it was only about 37.5% who actually voted Conservative in that election. Uh, As far as they're concerned, this is the mandate that they've been given. But on page five, where they talk about Brexit, there's only one page mentioning Brexit in that 60-odd page manifesto, it says, we will negotiate a trade agreement next year, one that will strengthen our union, and we won't extend the implementation period beyond December 2020. So, They made the promise. Here we are, a few days to go. But all the way through, he has been confident that he's going to get a deal with the European Union. But I think you do have that clip uh, from, uh, as you said, a year ago, almost to the day where he talked about doing the deal on trade.
5: Indeed, here he is on Sky's, Sky News' Beth Rigby show talking just about that and sounding very confident
3: indeed. Mr Johnson, this morning you absolutely promised your words uh, to leave the EU by January the 31st. If we get a working majority government. If you get a majority, but we all know, everyone here knows that a robust economy doesn't just depend on January the 31st, it depends on a trade deal with the EU by the end of December. So, my question to you is, do you here absolutely promise that you will get your trade deal done by the end of December? Well, Beth, we already have a deal, and we can come out on January the 31st in a state of perfect equilibrium and grace with the rest of the EU, uh, because we, we, have, we have a zero-tariff, zero-quota position now, And I've absolutely no doubt at all that we'll be able to make sure that the EU protects its own uh, interests and has a a deal with us that ensures that that continues for the future. Because, after all, the EU has a £65 billion trade surplus with us in goods alone. It's very much in their interests uh, to do a deal with us, and I've no doubt that they will.
5: Now, we're not hearing about he's talking about striking a deal there at that stage. I don't think the Australia style deal was quite in the common parlance it came into over the course of this year, Tony, during the negotiations. So can we have a bit of a fact check on what is an Australia style deal? Is an Australia style deal completely WTO, WTO terms or is an Australia style deal something a little bit more than that? And will the UK end up with more or less than Australia, ultimately, if they go out on the 1st of January with no trade deal in place?
4: Well, an Australian-style deal is is as complete a misnomer as as you could conjure up. Um, Australia doesn't have a free trade agreement with the EU, but it wants one, and they've been trying to negotiate one for a couple of years. But Australia does have uh, a series of bilateral arrangements with the EU, particularly around agriculture uh, and uh, meat exports and so on. Um, that uh, I suppose smoothed uh, the, the the trade flows uh, to a certain extent. Um, but there are significant barriers uh, to trade between Australia and the European Union. It's the EU is Australia's is still Australia's third biggest export market, but all of Australia's gravitational when it comes to trade is is around Asia and and the Pacific, and uh, they've made sure that they have free trade agreements and arrangements in place with all of their trading neighbours, whereas the UK is doing quite the opposite. It is pulling away from its biggest trading partner uh, through Brexit. Uh, But we can hear now from Malcolm Turnbull, who is a former Australian Prime Minister uh, on Question Time on the BBC, Uh, And he was asked to give his assessment on what an Australian-style deal would actually mean uh, for the UK.
1: Well, it'll be uh, pretty disappointing, I think you'll find out, where where we have obviously a deal with the EU on WTO terms. And there are really some very large barriers to Australian trade with Europe, which we're seeking to address as we negotiate a free trade agreement with Europe but Australians would not regard our trade relationship with Europe as being a satisfactory one. I mean, we do have, a, it's our third biggest trading partner, I guess, collectively, because it's such a big economy, but there are very big barriers to uh, Australian exports of agricultural products in particular. Uh, you know, there's a lot of um, friction in the system in terms of services. So, you know, there's a lot to to aim for and, you know, I. When I was Prime Minister, we started formal negotiations of a European-Australia free trade agreement, and, but that will take some time. So, you know, be careful what you wish for. I mean, Australia, Australia's uh, relationship with the EU is not one, from a trade point of view, that Britain, I think, would, uh, want, to, uh, would want, frankly.
5: There's sobering words on BBC Question Time, Sean, from Malcolm Turnbull, the Austra- former Australian Prime Minister. So have a look at the numbers for us there. What does Australia mean in real terms to explain maybe why Mr Turnbull was saying, be careful what you wish for?
0: Well, look at, at who they trade with, as Tony has said, uh, 73.2%. This is from the, the latest uh, publication of the Australian government on their trade. Uh, performance 73.2 percent of their trade is done with APEC countries that's the asia pacific area 12.8 percent with the european union with whom don't have a trade agreement a free trade agreement but they are in negotiations for a free trade agreement and that's the big question i have about this australia style deal if it's so great how come australia is trying to negotiate a free trade agreement with the european union and Mr. Turnbull seems to be suggesting it's not that great. Also, look at the things that Australia is exporting. Their top exports, iron ore, coal, natural gas. There's no tariffs on those kind of things. Gold, aluminium. OK, beef is in there. Uh, but if they've got free trade agreements with the countries that they're nearby, the countries in the region, huge demand for beef in China, for example, huge demand for everything in China uh, for Australian exports. They don't need to worry about... Uh, too much going to the European Union, but it'd be a nice add-on for them. But again, we're back to the gravity theory of trade, in that you do most of your trade with countries that are near to you. And it's the same, um, almost the same, with the United Kingdom. Uh, I mean, it, it, if Australia's top 10 trading countries, uh, Britain is at number seven, and it's the only European country. It does about the same share of trade with the UK as it does with New Zealand, which is more or less their next-door neighbour. Uh, 3.4% of their total trade uh, with the UK, 3.4% with New Zealand, 26.5% with China, uh, 10% with Japan. That's the kind of uh, way it goes for them. And you can see also with the British trade stats, okay, the US is number one, but then it's Germany, France, Netherlands nearby, China number five, Ireland number six, which a lot of people tend to forget about, Belgium, Switzerland, Spain, Italy, that's their top 10 for British trade, it's the folks nearby that you do most of your trade with. And while we're talking about trade with Ireland, we should also mention that uh, the biggest trade surplus that the United Kingdom enjoys is with Ireland, $10.3 billion. Uh, Then you look down other countries, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, all balled up together. They amount to roughly the same uh, 10000000000 odd dollar trade surplus uh, you know they tend to right, suck rather, up to the, rather to different to the types of goods and, and i'd good imagine countries a lot more than they do to ireland you don 't hear too much bashing about Saudi Arabia uh, and their government in the way you do of their next door neighbors in Ireland from whom they make a very big, very handsome profit it 's about the only country in the European Union that they have a trade surplus with, and yet we see barriers about to come down uh, in the next couple of weeks uh, leading to one anticipates. Uh, friction, well, everybody says there's going to be friction, uh, to what extent that friction will manifest itself and who will be feeling it first. I guess the poor old truck drivers are going to be feeling it first. And we're seeing some of that now this weekend because they're giving a test run to Operation Brock, uh, which is the bit where they turn part of the motorway between London and Dover into a contraflow system so that they can stack up trucks trying to get into the Channel Tunnel and into the port of Dover. Uh, They've got this amazing contraption that moves uh, concrete barriers across two lanes of motorway. Uh, They can do it in about four hours to cover this stretch. They're going to turn into a kind of a car park, set up a contraflow system, and then keep two lanes of this eight lanes of motorway for stacking trucks on, uh, heading towards the, uh, uh, well, to France and the continent, ultimately, uh, with a new traffic light system, a temporary traffic light system to be installed there. So they're going to trial that over the weekend, Friday night, tonight as we're recording it, they're going to move the barrier part of the way across. That's it, it's just started as we record tomorrow. this
5: at 20 past eight. There, it's, it's been 20 minutes in operation at the moment and rolling into, what is it, eight o'clock?
0: That's it, yeah. And uh, then the, the road will be open in a partial fashion. And on Sunday, they will open it fully uh, to have this contraflow system and this uh, stacking system uh, in operation uh, on the southbound lane. So it's a big undertaking. Uh, it's a good thing that they're testing it before it comes to the 1st of January. But again, the fact that they're having to test it at all shows you that the scale of the problems that they're anticipating there. By the way, there's already queues on, on the roads into Dover, has been for the past four days. There are also uh, queues five kilometres long, apparently, on the other side in This Calais, is due to the stockpiling amongst there. British
5: shops because people are well, stockpiling before the end going of the on. year.
0: You've got seasonal... Rush for the Christmas market. You've also got stockpiling because they are afraid of getting running out of supplies uh, because of the Brexit uh, situation and the customs delays that they're anticipating and these kind of traffic delays that they're anticipating. You've also got playing into this situation uh, the COVID factor because a lot of freight in particular got disrupted. So there are queues of ships trying to get into ports like Felixstowe or London Gateway to discharge their cargoes, things that were ordered a lot earlier in the year, obviously, because uh, that's the way these container freights operate. They're mostly coming from Asia, so it's not so much a Brexit factor for that, but it's still causing a lot of congestion, a lot more truck movements, uh, a lot of activity around the ports, and a lot of frustrated customers. We're hearing stories about people who've ordered stuff, ordinary consumers complaining to the uh, poor old customer service agents And a lot of customer service agents saying, sorry, I'm not having this anymore and uh, quitting their jobs, uh, basically, because they're getting sick of it. Now, most of that is the COVID factor. But if it continues after Christmas, it It might be a Brexit Brexit factor. factor. And warehousing is also another big issue over here. We also uh, this week have seen uh, a a publication by the uh, Welsh Affairs Committee from the British Parliament about the other side. I mean, we've, we've paid a lot of attention to Dover. But the second busiest roll-on, roll-off port is Hollyhead. And up there, well, the Welsh Government have their own operation stack along the A55, the main road along North Wales, because there's nowhere to put the trucks. They have a, an effort to uh, a truck park facility, uh, and it was rejected by the local authority in Hollyhead. So they literally have nowhere uh, to put them. Now, uh, the suggestion is that they will be Irish trucks will be sent 160 kilometres away to Warrington, or 280 kilometres away to Birmingham, to do their customs formalities when they come over. While they're waiting to, uh, while are waiting build to get into
5: a, another traffic jam facility.
0: Well, there, there will be a, a truck park up in uh, up in Hollyhead eventually. Uh, the, the local papers up there has been reporting in the last couple of days that a truck stop uh, that sells burgers and coffee and all the other things that truckers enjoy, and has parking for about 300 trucks. Has apparently been acquired by the government and apparently 24 staff there are being given notice. Uh, so that's more victims of Brexit. It's a bit like down at Ebb's fleet where they uh, shut down a COVID testing centre to make way for a truck park down there. So it, these things are having knock on consequences right. in the real world.
5: OK, Tony, just to go back to earlier on in the week, the dinner, Boris Johnson came to Brussels He met Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission. Expectations were being managed in advance that this was not a negotiation. This was a matter of getting a clear understanding on both sides as to what the issues were. And we got a clear understanding as to what the issues were afterwards because there, there was nothing really achieved at that apart from people having a frank or a lively exchange of views, depending on which side you believed.
4: Yeah, I mean, th- this was a, an extraordinary uh, case of uh, an extremely tight media management exercise by both sides because very little really reliable detail has come out of what went on in the the, the dinner. Boris Johnson came over to Brussels, uh, he flew over, uh, met Ursula von der Leyen at, at uh, Eight o'clock in the evening, the dinner was between the two of them and Michel Barnier and David Frost, the two chief negotiators, but also the two senior advisors, so Stephanie Rizzo, who is a long-standing Brexit advisor to both Michel Barnier and she's now the main Brexit person in Ursula von der Leyen's cabinet. And then on the other side, you had Oliver Lewis, who is another former Vote Leave person in Downing Street, uh, who's a a key advisor there and seems to be steering a lot of the Brexit policy. Um, But the idea was that they would try and dislodge some of the big political issues uh, and then hand things back to the two negotiators. But it looks like they didn't uh, manage any of that at all. I mean, any of the briefing that I've heard, which has been precious uh, little briefing, um, suggested Boris Johnson didn't bring any new ideas to the table, whereas Uh, some of the British papers were briefing that he did and he got a stony-faced response from Michel Barnier. Uh, So there was a lot more reporting about the body language uh, that was on show and the fact that Boris Johnson had to be kind of um, instructed by Ursula von der Leyen about the etiquette of wearing a face mask and social distancing and so on, even though that only happened over a few microseconds. Um, But clearly there was no breakthrough and there were two fairly terse statements issued afterwards, one uh, from the Commission, which said, yes, we had a lively and interesting discussion, but no, no breakthrough, and uh, a briefing from a senior UK source saying very large gaps, uh, possibly they won't get a deal, but they were both going to keep going until until Sunday. Now, interestingly, again, just to get back to the Sunday deadline, two British Cabinet ministers have said that Sunday they will have to make a decision not on whether to go ahead with the talks uh, or or have a decision on no deal or not, but... They would take a decision on the future of the talks, not 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 the future relationship. So again, you know, trying to decodify what these things mean is a bit tricky. But clearly, we are now still going around in circles on the level playing field, uh, state aid and fisheries, and in in general, I think level playing field is seen as the big problem area at this stage.
5: Well, before we get into sausages and meat pies, can we just look at what was on the menu uh, at that particular meeting between Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen? Scallops and turbot, both of which are said to be fished in UK waters by European vessels. Was there a point being made there? But the oft-neglected ingredient on the menu was uh, wasabi. Was that in? an implication maybe there that the UK had signed up already to perhaps more onerous conditionality with Japan in its recent trade deal than it was willing to sign up to with the European Union?
4: Well, don't forget the coconut cream dessert. I mean, like we'd have to invent a narrative around future no, UK, I think that's just a clear reference Jamaica, <laughs> this process is not <laughs> Caribbean uh, free trade agreements I mean who knows the, things got hairy is, maybe that's that the there implication there kind of, with uh, coconut is this agenda going on by by the chefs or, or it could just be that that's what they had in the fridge at the time um who knows but certainly in the absence of any real detail about breakthroughs uh, the, the media had lots of fun uh, on, um, on, on a more serious note on that
5: yeah On the issues you were talking about there, level playing field, governance and fisheries, this issue about the level playing field, the UK saying that the European Union has changed tack, they were happy with non-regression, and then they brought in dynamic alignment. Can we just have a look at that and just clarify the facts on this position first? I think that's a worthwhile exercise uh, at this point, because Michel Barnier's mandate hasn't changed. So did the European Union introduce, or indeed even could they introduce, something that radically new at this point?
4: Well, they didn't. Um, that, that's that's the first thing. And dynamic alignment was there in the original uh, mandate that Michelle Barnier got, but that was for uh, state aid um, and everything else. Labour standards, social standards, environmental, and so on. That was basically non-regression. So, in other words, both sides would agree not to lower their standards, and and the baseline for the standards would be what what way things would be on the 1st of January. So in other words, the UK leaves the EU on the 1st of January. The standards that it has are, you know, the legacy EU standards. So both sides would agree not to lower their standards there. And I think the UK was fine with that. But then Member States said, well, hang on a second, we are going to be you know, over the next decades, we're going to be aiming for carbon neutrality by 2050. We've we've got a whole range of ambitions that we want to have in terms of standards. Um, what if we in, improve or, or raise our standards and the UK doesn't? Uh, you know, what's going to happen there? That means that European companies can be undercut by British ones who don't have the same level of onerous obligations and regulations and so on. And it might even prevent the EU from embracing these new standards out of fear that if they do, then their companies will be undercut. Um, And and this has been, uh, you you know, a a thread throughout the eight months of negotiations. Both sides set out in the political declaration last year that they would have robust um, level playing field provisions with uh, enforcement rules, um, you know, with uh, dispute mechanisms, dispute settlement mechanisms, But then when the negotiations started, the UK just departed from the joint uh, political declaration saying, actually, we think it's just a framework. We'd rather stick with WTO provisions on the level playing field or provisions that are in existing uh, free trade agreements. Uh, And the EU said, well, that's simply not going to work because you are not like any other existing free trade partner. And World Trade Organization terms are simply nowhere near robust enough for the kind of relationship that we have with this huge economy on our doorstep, geographically close, already this huge interdependence with thousands of UK companies already operating. And and also uh, not terribly
5: practical, the former EU ambassador to the uh, United States and former Taoiseach John Bruton was pointing out on RT's This Week programme last Sunday that the WTO doesn't have the bandwidth to solve... The amount of or the number of complex complaints that would arise on a variety of issues between the EU and the UK because they are so integrated that they just simply couldn't handle it, and it's not a satisfactory mechanism for sorting things out.
4: Well, yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Um, just the, the volumes of trade that would be there. Um, so, so what the EU has been trying to do is to say, look, we we need to have uh, something that works, something that will give us the reassurance and you guys the reassurance as well that neither side can undercut the other, and that, you know, we we start with principles and then we make the principles operational, and that's kind of classic EU approach. That's how they solved the the Irish border uh, situation. Things have to be legally operational, and it's no use the UK saying, well, of course, we're not going to lower our standards, and of course we have the highest food standards in the world. Why, Why should we want to lower them? Yes, of course. But, you know, again, if you're so confident in them, why are you afraid to put them on paper? Um, But I think genuinely for the for the UK, there is a worry that if they commit to certain labor standards, like, for example, parental leave or um, the working time directive or standards for truck drivers, if they agree to that, in an international treaty, is that going to be binding on future uh, governments? And 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 what if a future Labour party comes along and says government and comes along and says, "Yeah, actually, we would like to raise our standards to the level of EU standards on uh, workers' rights," um, and and that will be part of the free trade agreement that we've signed. What then happens if a future Conservative government decides to to depart from that? Uh, kind of new baseline. Um, Will they be prohibited by international law? Will they face tariffs or other sanctions as part of this, what they call cross-cutting retaliation system that might be in the level playing field? All of these things are interlinked and and are very difficult, and they still have to figure it out between now and, and Sunday.
5: Sean, on that the issue of you know dynamic alignment versus level playing field and the debate, how would you judge I suppose the standard of it because earlier on, I was listening to uh, Liam Fox, the former trade secretary, talking to the BBC, and he was still talking about dynamic alignment
0: yeah, I well, think the, the quality of the debate's pretty abysmal uh, on the few occasions when that, that debate uh, breaks out I mean various uh, people who follow this brexit business and trade in particular closely, have remarked at how little debate there really is in the UK about the nature of uh, the the market relationship that they are seeking uh, with the EU. And that is reflected in the fact that they keep coming back to this dynamic alignment business and it keeps being raised. Now, uh, some of the more conspiratorially minded uh, trade Twitter types have been saying, well, maybe they're just setting up a straw man that Boris Johnson can easily slay and uh, agree to a deal later on. Says, oh, we got rid of all that dynamic alignment nonsense. Uh, I have won another great victory. Please vote for this one. We've only a few days of Parliament left before the Christmas recess. Let's rammer through, just like they did last year with the original withdrawal agreement. Uh, but the fact that uh, so many journalists are posing questions, for example, or other politicians are listening in on, question and answer type programs and people start waffling on about dynamic alignment and nobody picks them up on it means that they're not really terribly aware, I suspect, of what is actually going on.
5: Well, in fairness, the exchange I heard the journalist in question did did pick them up on it. Let's go to Northern Ireland, folks, because um, the joint committee where things have been relatively harmonious by contrast to the free trade negotiations, there was a breakthrough this week and something that people thought maybe would herald some form of development in the free trade agreements, although it didn't come this week. Tony, what happened?
4: Yes, yeah, so the Joint Committee has been set up, as we know, by the Withdrawal Agreement to implement uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol, as well as the other uh, protocols, but Northern Ireland is where, is where what we're interested in, so yes, they've, they've been working hard, despite a lot of the divisions and disputes that have happened over the year. Um, the signals were that Michael Gove on the UK side and Maros Shevchevich on the EU side had had a kind of a breakthrough near the end of September where they said, okay, look, we're just going to direct the civil service in Whitehall and the European Commission, the different divisions in the European Commission who handle all these issues like uh, animal health, food safety, customs. We're just going to direct these guys to find solutions to the problem. And the problems, as we've discussed in the podcast before, what happens to huge mixed consignments of foodstuffs going from... GB depots to Tesco's in in Lisburn or wherever, Sainsbury's and Derry, these big multinationals, uh, uh, multiples who uh, have Northern Ireland uh, branches. Uh, And then the question about what goods would be at risk or not at risk of crossing the border. Would there be exit summary declarations for goods going the other way from Northern Ireland to Great Britain? What about the whole state aid's uh, reach-back controversy? And amazingly, in one sweeping flourish, they found solutions to to all of these things. Now, um, this has been greeted with cautious relief by traders in Northern Ireland, especially the supermarkets, uh, even more cautiously uh, welcomed by the DUP. Um, But when you look at the fine print, there's a lot of derogations there and exemptions that are only temporary. So in other words... The big worry was for, for food stuff coming in, that was anything animal-based like dairy or meat, any of those stuff, things coming into Northern Ireland from Great Britain would normally need an export health certificate. Those are expensive, up to 200 quid for one of those. They need to be signed off by a vet. How are you going to do that if you've got thousands of these products in one container? Um, so what they've done there is they've said, okay, you're going to have an exemption for those kind of certificates for three months. Um, And then the other question that we discussed before about sausages, mince, lasagnas, unfrozen prepared meals that would normally be banned from the EU from a third country, they're going to be allowed in for six months, uh, but they have to have an export health certificate. And after the six months, uh, essentially, Northern Ireland supermarkets are going to have to get those kind of products locally in Northern Ireland or in the South, because the South and Northern Ireland are going to be operating under the same EU food safety regime. Now, to underpin all of this, the UK agreed to issue a unilateral declaration that it would abide by EU food safety rules for those three-month and six-month periods. Again, as a reassurance to the EU member states that whatever's coming in from Great Britain into Northern Ireland and by extension into the single market would be safe for consumers. And I think that was a very difficult thing for the UK to swallow because what they're doing is they're, they're promising that they'll be uh, fully aligned to the EU rulebook for a period of time after Brexit has taken effect uh, from the 1st of January. There's going to be a trusted trader scheme as well, which will do away with a whole swathe of potential tariffs. Um, there there will be uh, the use of supermarket monitoring systems and stock, stock management systems, traceability systems. They will all provide... Uh, a high-tech kind of de facto expert, export health certificate because they will know where animal products have come from, where they are at a given time. So all of these brought together um, will will kind of provide the EU with the reassurance that, that no nasty stuff is going to get into the single market, but will also allow those normal food, trade flows of food to, to continue so you're not going to have empty shelves in northern supermarkets, nor will you have... Supermarkets closing down and underpinning it all again, of course, uh, will be the fact that you're going to have EU officials, EU vets and customs experts on the ground in Northern Ireland looking over the shoulder of uh, British, Northern Irish uh, officials who will be doing the checking at border control posts in Larne and Belfast and Warren Point uh, and looking over to make sure that they have customs uh, formalities dealt with as well. And finally, and crucially, There can be remote monitoring of this as well in member states. So in, in, uh, you know, Vienna, a customs official can go into the office in in Vienna and look into the UK's customs database to see what's coming into Northern Ireland to make sure it's all legit.
5: All right. Sean, just uh, looking ahead, then you were talking about the major truck jams on the motorways in Britain in advance even of Brexit. But one of the things we saw coming out during the week as well was the European Commission releasing its contingency plans. And there must be some cause for relief, at least, for some British people who travel regularly as a result of what was revealed in those.
0: Well, some relief and and also some uh, shock and dismay as well because the travel issue for, uh, if you like to call them, ordinary people uh, is coming more to the fore. Um, notably with the uh, COVID restrictions. um, At the moment, uh, the UK is covered as part of the European Union or treated as part of the European Union for its uh, internal uh, movement systems. Uh, It'll fall out of that arrangement on the 1st of January. Some here are interpreting that as British people being banned from the European Union. Uh, It certainly will probably uh, act as some deterrent effect. But then again, as you say, there's contingency measures in place to ensure that flights continue to operate, though not entirely uh, the way airlines would like them to. The Channel Tunnel continues to operate, the ferries continue to operate, truck drivers are able to continue to operate up to, an, uh, to a point. So there's connectivity there so that goods and people will still be able to move for legitimate reasons. But other things do kick in, uh, like the um, they're saying uh, you have 90 days to go on your holidays or stay in your holiday home. And some people are getting uh, deeply concerned. They're thinking, well, I bought this place down in Spain. Does that mean I can't spend six months continuously uh, enjoying a great summer or a great winter down there? What's going to happen to my healthcare?" There's a lot more traction starting to happen now. Things that used to be dismissed as Project Fear are now being uh, headlined as, oh, no, look what's about to happen in a few days' time.
5: Yeah, Michael Gove so, was being interviewed the, during the week. He was being asked for reassurance that people could continue with Erasmus, that they would continue to be able to access healthcare on the continent. And the best qualified answer he could give was for a period.
0: For a period. That's it. it is, uh, he gave a little bit more in a, a Commons answer. Uh, oh, no, it was Jacob rees Smog actually talking about the Erasmus and saying that the government would continue to ensure that the Erasmus scheme but 2014 to 2020 and any commitments entered into it would be fully honoured. But it sounds like you know that's going to run on for another few months, maybe another year or two. But get your applications in quick, folks, because uh, the shutters are definitely coming down on Erasmus, as far as we can tell, as far as we know, uh, at this time of, of making the recording. So suddenly Brexit is starting to get real now for a lot of people. Uh, they're starting to see issues like this. And, you know, when you start uh, discussing on, on television news programs or in the newspapers, changes to the the way flights operate in Europe. Uh, again, this brings home the reality to people that things are going to change. Although the government are running an advertising campaign, have been for a couple of weeks now, telling business, get ready. You've only a couple of days with all kinds of countdown clocks. You have to make the change. Business keeps throwing it back at them. Fine, but tell us what the change is going to be. Uh, You keep telling us change, but you haven't told us what we have to change to. And that's the real dilemma for an awful lot of uh, British business and British society. They just don't know yet. And it's also, I guess, the same uh, for us trying to report on these negotiations, because we don't know what they're talking about. There's all kinds of leaks and spin and counter spin going on. Nobody's seen any negotiating text, so it's hard to know exactly what they are talking about Uh, without seeing stuff down on paper.
5: Right. Tony, just uh, to get an an expert view, which you were getting during the week, tell us who you were talking to and what you were talking about.
4: Yeah, so I was talking to Stuart Harbison, who is a former WTO official. He was also a senior advisor to Pascal Lamy, who was the uh, director of the World Trade Organisation, director general of the World Trade Organisation for a period, Uh, and uh, I was talking to him as part of a webinar with uh, a think tank called United Europe. But I asked uh, Stuart what exactly a WTO, no deal, Brexit would actually mean. And this is what he had to say. That's very interesting. We, we, we'll probably come back to some of those issues a bit later. But I'd like to bring in Stuart Harbison now, uh, who is will be the expert in the panel on on uh, World Trade Organization terms and tariffs and non-tariff barriers and so on. Uh, welcome again, Stuart what, how are you feeling at the moment? Um, certainly, as someone who worked for the World Trade Organization, uh, and those three initials are invoked in every second tweet uh, that I see at the moment. Uh, if it has become part of uh, common parlance uh, across uh, Europe and certainly on social media. So, how do you see things at the moment from your vantage point?
2: Oh, thanks, Tony. Well, I, you know, at a, at a broad level. Um, the WTO is, the, is, is the, the basic plumbing of the world trading system, and it provides um, uh, the basis on which everyone trades. Many countries um, integrate more deeply than the WTO uh, has in its toolbox through free trade agreements and customs unions and that sort of thing. Um, so the, the WTO is kind of like a flaw. Uh, setting the the, the the terms on which everyone must uh, trade, but you can go further with individual trading partners or groups of partners if you want to. Um, so, you know, I think the WTO provides a tremendous amount of st- uh, stability and predictability in the trading system, which is not to be undervalued at all. But nevertheless, um, You know, the the UK has been part of the EU and it's been fully integrated uh, into the customs union. So for example, if you took tariffs, um, then of course, no tariffs apply uh, when the UK is part of the EU and during this transitional year. But I was taking a look at the UK uh, tariffs that they've announced for the 1st of January, uh, 2021. Uh, which, are, which are quite interesting. Um, these are what they call the global tariffs. So they would apply to countries with which they do not have FTAs. So that means that these tariffs would apply to the EU uh, starting from the 1st of January in the event that there's no deal. And compared with the common external tariff of the EU, there's not that much change actually uh, compared with the, the, the common external tariff. Uh, I think about 30, a third of the tariff lines uh, remain the same uh, in terms of the duties. Um, some are liberalized. They're quite keen on removing what they call nuisance tariffs, which is tariffs below 2%. They've simplified a lot of tariffs by rounding them down and uh, they've done various other things. But um, so, you know, it's not a huge, a huge change compared to the common external tariff now. What changes is that the EU um, would be paying those tariffs or importers in the UK of EU products would be paying those tariffs, which is a big change. Um, for example, uh, it has been said, I looked up an analysis, that whereas now 100% of imports from the EU would be duty free from the 1st of January next year only 44% of imports from the ET, from the EU would be duty free so that's you know less than half compared with now this is in the event of, uh, of no deal
4: yeah i mean and typically people talk about agriculture um agri-foods and car manufacturing attracting the biggest uh, tariffs. Is is that broadly right? I mean, what what other areas do you typically get higher tariffs?
2: Well, the the most highly protected area uh, in the tariff field is is without doubt agriculture. Um, It's a very sensitive area, although it doesn't generally account for a huge percentage of a country's GDP, but politically it's very, very sensitive. And it's hugely complex. Uh, If there's no deal, because the EU operates what it calls tariff rate quotas for many products like beef, lamb, uh, butter and other things. And these are essentially quantitative restrictions. So you're allowed to uh, import uh, up to a certain amount tariff free or with a very low tariff. And then after that, the tariff becomes prohibitive. So basically it acts like a, a quantitative restriction. So if there's no deal between uh, the UK and the EU, then the UK will have to have a tariff rate quota in the EU. The EU will have to give it a tariff rate quota. and that's hugely complex because there's, there's loads of other countries out there who will be looking at this and saying, you know what about me, uh, countries like you know, the agricultural exporting countries like the United States, Australia, Brazil, New Zealand. We'll be looking at this and trying to make sure that the EU uh, doesn't give uh, the UK any preferential treatment.
4: So, in other words, the UK any tariff uh, quotas or tariff rate quotas that the EU grants to the UK, the EU would have to keep one eye on their existing trade partners so that they're not upset.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and you're supposed, and- to, you're supposed to kind of. Calculate the tariff rate quota on a sort of representative period, but there's no representative period for the UK because it's been actually part of the EU. So there's no kind of track record as a, as a third country.
4: Is it, is it possible to just follow that idea through to, to say, in a, in a given sector, say lamb or, or whatever? I don't know if that's a good example. It's often quoted. Um, can you give a real, real world example of where this might hit?
2: Well, I think uh, beef would be, a, would be a big example and lamb to a certain extent as well, yeah, yeah. Because, uh, and, and it would cut both ways and this is important for Ireland, of course, because um, how will the UK treat, treat beef imports from Ireland? Uh, maybe the UK will have a tariff rate quota, I don't know. Uh, that's in their, that is in their WTO schedule. They've got tariff rate quotas for beef. In their WTO uh, schedule, uh, but we don't know. They've not really given much indication of how they're going to play it next year. Obviously, yeah. their concern would be to make sure there's plenty of food coming into the UK. So, to that extent, it should be okay. Um, but then, uh, you know, again, you know, the Americans, the Australians, the New Zealanders will be keeping a very close eye on this and making sure that the EU, that the UK, is not um, favouring
5: the EU. Okay, with that sobering picture being painted by Stuart Harbison, a former advisor to the WTO chief, Pascal Lamy, lads, let's have a look ahead to Sunday and what we can expect. We actually don't know really what to expect, except perhaps to be doing another episode of this podcast to bring a bit of clarity to it if the need arises.
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, Michal Martin this morning was asked, uh, this morning being Friday, was asked at the summit, did he have an idea of what the sequence would be on uh, on Sunday, and he he said that Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen would, would call it. Uh, so I don't know if that means that they will have another phone call or they will issue joint statements or whatever when they've had a, a signal from the two negotiators if if they've come to the end of the road or if they've found some magical breakthrough behind the sofa. Um, we'll have to wait and see. It's. I mean, I think Sean's made a very important point there about You know, we ultimately don't know what the final genuine position is from the European Commission and from the British government on the level playing field. I mean, and again, he's also right to say that member states have not seen any text jointly drafted so far. So
5: So how does the the Irish government know that we're 97 percent of the way there then, as they've been saying?
4: Well, they read it on the RTE website. That's why. No. <laughs> um, uh, that's well, that, that that was that that was briefed to um, EU ambassadors by um, one of uh, the you, well, the, Toby, se- the senior. The uh, you you briefed the ambassadors. On that I, <laughs> I wish. Uh, that was that was a briefing to ambassadors. Uh, I think a week or so ago by. Um, by a senior uh, official in the European Commission who was deputising for Michel Barnier, who of course was isolating at that point. Um, but you know, we, we don't know what the the final positions will be by the two sides. These ideas are extremely complicated and technical, and very few people know exactly what uh, is going on. This is you know we're still in tunnel uh, conditions, um, and we just have to wait and see. You know, so it's always possible that they could spring some. Uh, amazing deal over the weekend and more than one person uh, has you know, mentioned in passing at the European summit uh, in the past few days that of course Boris Johnson has said that under no circumstances would he accept X, Y and Z but he, he did that last year just before the withdrawal agreement and then he, when push came to shove he signed up to a new protocol which basically put a, a border on the Irish Sea, uh, something he swore would never happen
5: Sean, what are you, what's your best estimate at this issue? Are we in the business? It's like one of these pre-election programmes where people are asked to call it? I mean, it doesn't look good at this point, so could we have an early day on Sunday, Sean, do you think?
0: Well, it'd be nice, wouldn't it? Wouldn't um, it? In the sense that it'd be nice to get a, a result, to get an answer, uh, have it all wrapped up by tea time, that would be fantastic, but uh, I don't know. Look, they can stretch this process. Uh, they can push it a bit further. They can go to the 30th or 31st, and then say, Yeah, we're going to have we're not calling it a transition period, but a transition period to allow the ratifications uh, that has to be done uh, in the, the different parliaments, uh, different countries, whatever, and also giving an extended grace period or whatever uh, that's needed because uh, things people are just not ready for this, particularly in this country. I mean, we talked earlier about the truck chaos, the, the customs infrastructure which everybody's known has been needed for a couple of years now it's just not there and it's not going to be there the british government has said they're not going to implement until next july so they could do with a bit of a break as well they could do with stretching a transition period and just declaring victory by saying yeah we got the deal done this year we got it over the line and yeah yeah there'll be a bit of implementation and stuff but don't worry about that folks and besides covid has knocked everything for six and and cause delays etc there's plenty of ways to fluff and fudge and bluster about this one Uh, and i think most people would probably buy it for the sake of a quiet life and be happy enough to say yeah we got brexit we got what we needed we've also got a little bit of a breathing space and because everything is up in the air with covid anyway uh, it's fine we let it go and just let it drift in that way that's my optimistic scenario for things it's equally as conceivable come Friday, Sunday night, that they just say, right, that's it, nothing's happening. That's it the is. Boris
4: Johnson answer. <laughs> that, yeah. <laughs> to, to, two, two
0: versions of the-, well, like I, the... I'm a journalist, like uh, Mr. Johnson himself.
4: Right.
5: Um, maybe maybe, maybe, maybe this used to be.
0: So, I, I you know, I, I have the card that allows me to, to go that sort of way. And it's like the old two-handed economist on the one hand, on the other hand. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you have to look at it in both perspectives. And I, I think that is the only way we can at the moment, unless there's some really fantastic, super duper conspiracy that's been cooked up by five people in a darkened room uh, to keep us all waiting uh, for deliberate uh, reasons of parliamentary tactics on the British side and perhaps European Council tactics on their side, because if the European Council were able to hang tough against the British, that would also put the frighteners on the Hungarians on the Poles, to uh, acquiesce in the agreement on the budget and the huge covid recovery fund that was needed so you know maybe one thing feeds into the other it was good to have a bit of a delay on the the brexit side of things to look tough towards the east as well as looking tough towards the west or maybe my mind is too conspiratorially uh, active uh, on these sort of things uh, because we are flying blind we don't really know uh, the only people who know are the people who know and they're not telling us the old spoiler sports
5: Right, well, as long as the conspirators are socially distancing appropriately in whatever smoky room they find themselves. That's it for me, Colm O'Mungo, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor from home in Kildare.
0: From me, Sean Whelan, RTE's London correspondent in, where else, London. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's
4: Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening, and we may be speaking to you on Sunday night.